0: Let's pray before we uh, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 31 and wrap up the 1 Samuel study. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask, God, that your Holy Spirit would be here with us as we open this up, that you would minister to our hearts and our minds, sharing with us the things that uh, you desire us to know and to learn and to implement in our lives. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to be more Christ-like every second of our lives in Jesus' name. In studying the Bible, geography tells us a whole lot. So let's take a look at what we have here in 1 Samuel chapter 31 because it's going to be really, really helpful to help us further understand our text this evening. And so some background information. David made buddies with the king of Gath, Achish. And so Akish gave this land to David because David requested this land because he, he was like, oh, I don't want to bother you. Just give me something far off. And so he said, oh, okay, and gave him this thing called Ziklag. Ziklag was way down south, and we have a map of that way down south in Israel. And so see where Ziklag, that red dot there and, and in the corner map, that red box there, that kind of centers where Ziklag is. So it gives you an idea of where Ziklag is. Now keep in mind the Philistines are now in Shunem. Right? We, several chapters ago we were talking about that and they were staging this war against Saul and Israel who are at Mount Gilboa and we have a map of that. Shunem is the red dot. Mount Gilboa is just southeast of that. And so the uh, Philistines are at Shunem. They're staging to get ready for war. And so Bethshan just northeast of Mount Gilboa, I don't think you can see that there, is where Saul's body is nailed to the wall, and his son's bodies are nailed to those city walls there, and if we ever go to Israel again for a pilgrimage, some of those walls are still standing, and we'll be able to see them, and and we'll we'll talk about this story there. So, it's there. It's not a make-believe thing. Archaeologists have dug this up. It's really there. All this stuff is really there. So, what is all this geography about? Because if you just kind of look at it as that and you don't kind of delve deeper, you, you kind of don't know. So looking at a Philistine's point of view, they are being very strategic here. Very, very strategic. Where where the Philistine's march to is called the, the Plain of Esdraelon, And within the Plain of Esdraelon is the Via Maris. And so the Via Maris is this trade route. It, it was an ancient trade route way back when, but this, it was a trade route during this time. And it went along the coast starting in the northern coast of Egypt... And so it kind of circled out via Maris Way, Ocean Sea, right? And it kind of went along North Africa, and it went up Israel, and then it went across the plain of Israel. So you see back in the early Bronze Age, the ancient trading route, it linked Egypt with the northern empires of of Syria, of Anatolia, of Mesopotamia, all these superpowers of the time. And so what we know now as modern-day Iran, Iraq, Turkey, Syria. And so the the Via Maris, the way of the sea, it came up along that sea coast in northern Africa and it cut across the plain of Israel and then it goes east to the Sea of Galilee and that was one route or it could go further east to Ramoth Gilead where it would get to the King's Highway and then it would go up to Damascus. And so this is kind of where all trade happened. This is where all the, the trade routes happened. This was a major, major trade route. So by being at Shunem The Philistines did two things. They cut Saul off from his northern tribes. They bisected Israel so that they totally cut him off from the northern tribes. He only had kind of direction of the southern tribes. But not only did he do that, they controlled the trade route. So nothing can go in, nothing can come out without them. So anything that they were collecting revenues on, anything that they were collecting tariffs on, cut off. They basically cut off the economic supply, right? So not only did they divide their military, I don't know if it was half-half, but it was north and south. But they also cut off any type of economic stimulus that would come in or go out. So it's just a brilliant, brilliant strategy by the Philistines here. Now, you've got to keep this in mind because this is why Saul is so desperate, He was so desperate seeking the Lord's guidance about what's going to happen. Who do we fight? and Am I going to win? And all this stuff. And he goes to seek that witch of Endor and he tries to get all that stuff. He has to win this. He has no choice. If he does not win this, Israel is done. Right? So keep this in mind as we start in our text, starting in verse 1 here. Now the Philistines fought against Israel and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The main point of this chapter is that the fortunes of the kingdom of God in this world appear irreversibly hopeless. And if that is so, what are we to do with that? Because if you look back at what happened here, Saul's reign is over. And the future of Israel is uncertain. And it appears to be hopeless at this time. And we're, we're given a, a pretty brutal picture here, right? If, if you look back at those verses and you just pick out the verbs and the words describing what was happening here and, and found in these seven verses, fought, fled, fell, struck down, pressed hard, badly wounded, thrust me, mistreat, feared greatly, took his own sword and fell upon it, died, abandoned. Just these really tragic, brutal words and it's... You get the picture? You get that picture in those seven verses? And then you jump over to verse 2, and you see how tragedy and and this loyalty are all mixed in this verse here. Right? Because you look at verse 2, and you look at who died. And somebody very prominent and very good died within that verse there, and it's Jonathan. Jonathan. Now, what does this tell us about tragedy and loyalty? I mean, why Jonathan? The faithful friend of David, the the faithful son of Saul, the faithful prince of Israel, a good guy, right? Chapters 13 and 14, 18 through 20, they just give us these great glimpses of, of what a great king and what great potential Jonathan had to be king, that he was really capable of taking over as king. But because of his father's actions, he just would never get that opportunity. Because Saul's misconduct, his faithlessness, his stubbornness, his disobedience made it so that that dynasty was done. It would be cut off. There would be no kingly line to continue from Saul. And so we have Jonathan, the, the prince of Israel, the heir to the throne. Was he outside of God's will for his life? Was he outside of his calling? And I don't think so. His basic calling was to be Saul's son, the prince, to be David's friend. And I believed he fulfilled his calling, that he was faithful in the circumstances that were put in front of him, and that he lived that out even unto death. And he was a faithful son of Saul, the, the prince of Israel, and he fought against the Philistines on Mount Gilboa. He lived out his life in his time. He was faithful to his call in the circumstances laid in front of him. And now some of you might think, what a waste. What a waste of a life. Someone with so much potential. Someone that was, that was educated so well, that had all this stuff. He was heir to the throne. He, he had all this wealth. I mean, how tragic, Jonathan's life, that it ended like this. On Mount Gilboa, archers, he's dead. And sure, Jonathan could have done a lot more with his life if he lived but I don't think we can say that Jonathan was outside God's will. I don't think that we can say that his life was a waste. You recall that Jonathan surrendered the throne to David back in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and that he was faithful to David. And we see how he was faithful to his father to the very end up to this point right here. He died with him up on that mountain there on Mount Gilboa in in chapter 31. And in this tragedy, we find Jonathan nowhere else but in the place that God wanted him to be. Right next to his father Saul, fighting against the Philistines. And sometimes we wonder what God wants us to do with our lives. What what kind of jobs are we going to be doing? What kind of ministries are we going to be doing? What kind of life are we going to be living? And here we see Jonathan, the crown prince, the heir to the throne, was found where he was supposed to be, right by his dad's side, fighting against the Philistines as the prince of Israel. And Jonathan was a really, really good guy. And you would think that something better should have happened with his life. Why did he just die there? but he was doing exactly what he was supposed to be doing as the crown prince. And he was faithfully serving as the crown prince. He was serving faithfully in the place God had put him, yet it doesn't come out all good, does it? And you would think that someone following the will of God and following the call of God, that it's going to end up good. That you're not going to be end up with a bunch of arrows in you and dead and then nailed onto the wall. Is it a waste to live out your life faithfully to God's call? In the circumstances that lie right in front of you, was Jonathan foolish for laying aside a kingdom he could not have to enter Mount Gilboa and gain a kingdom that he could not lose? And so, this is a picture of a faithful servant until his very last breath. So, how does this apply to us? How how does this pertain to us? See, it's not about our potential being met. It's not about us being fulfilled in what we do in our calling, whether that be in ministry or in vocation or whatever else. And that's what our culture often tells us. Our culture often tells us it's about your fulfillment. It's about your potential. It's about whether we are faithful. It's about whether we are faithful serving in our calling that God has revealed to us. And that's what it's about. So you see what the Bible is showing us here. We can be like Jonathan. A person who was courageous in his faith. A person who was faithful in his relationships. A person who was a blessing to God's people. A person who was dynamic in his life. But he still ended up dead at Mount Gilboa. That's not so pleasant to hear, is it? Like, great, thanks for the encouraging message this evening. I can be so good and like I can be dead. Great, thanks. But how different this is from our culture and in many Christian circles that are actually telling us something else that is outside of biblical, that believe that if we're like Jonathan, if you are like Jonathan, it will yield you success. It will yield you financial gain. It will yield you peace. It will yield you influence. It will yield you reach. It will yield you whatever kind of success you have in your mind. But that's not what we see here in our text. It did not yield, Jonathan, those things. And we have to realize that the Christian life does not equate to the American dream. Those aren't the same thing, right? They're different things. What God promises to His disciples is an eternal life with Him. He did not promise an ideal life in this world. He did not promise that. And being a disciple of Jesus, a servant of God, does not guarantee that you will be living a life that is absent of distress, absent of despair, absent of darkness. And having a relationship with Jesus doesn't guarantee that you'll never feel negative emotions like loneliness or anxiety or or worry. And following Jesus doesn't guarantee that you won't have difficult times with your spouse that might lead to the road of divorce. It doesn't mean that you're going to be not experiencing difficult times with your children who can lead you to heartache. It doesn't mean that you're not going to experience difficult times with your family when your parents get elderly and you've got to take care of them. Being a servant of God does allow us some things. though. It allows us to be courageous in faith. It allows us to be faithful in our relationships. It allows us to be a blessing to people. It allows us to live a dynamic life in the face of our trials, in the face of those difficult circumstances in our life. And those trials that may be the equivalent to a death on Mount Gilboa, that it doesn't always end up happy. And like Jonathan, we can be faithful in the places that God has placed us, but that doesn't mean that we get an ideal life in this world. And we need to be careful not to confuse, you know, the American dream or or this culture that we live in with our calling and with what is biblical. Because they're not the same. Let's not confuse the Bible with what isn't biblical. In our culture and even some religious talk that we find out there, it's not necessarily biblical. And it's not a waste. It's not Tragic to be faithful in the calling that God has placed on you, and for you to live in that calling in whatever circumstances you face in your life, even though you might end up dead on Mount Gilboa. And here we see a picture of a really faithful servant. Now let's take a look at the real failure here in verses 3 through 7. In verses 3 through 7, three times the text focuses on Saul's death, and we're told three times that Saul has died. Saul was wounded by the archers. Uh, They just kind of berated them with all these arrows. And and so he's wounded and he's afraid that the Philistines, they're going to catch up to him. And and they're not only going to kill him, they are going to humiliate him. They are going to abuse him. They're going to do things to him that he's not wanting them to do while he is alive. And so instead he asks his armor bearer to kill him. His armor bearer refuses. So he kills himself. He falls on his own sword. And so we read that Saul was dead. His three sons were dead. His armor bearer was dead. Some of the men that were with him that didn't make it out, they were dead. And when the men who were alive and on the other side of the Jordan that saw this, they saw that their leadership was dead, they just took off. And then the Philistines moved into their places. And so what exactly is the failure here? What is the clear failure here? The clear failure here, the the, the true failure here is man's idols. Man's idols. And in this case it's the idol of kingship. Now you recall back in chapter 8 that the people came to Samuel and they, they were demanding a king. And so the people were telling Samuel, Samuel, man, you got to live in the now, Samuel. You we're so like antiquated with our, with our government and, and how we do things. There, there are new challenges to deal with here. There, there's a new system that needs to be put in place. Our old stuff's not working anymore. Look at everyone else. Everyone else has this form of government that we should implement. Because you see, if you look at history in the background here, this is kind of the Iron Age. The coming of the Iron Age was upon them. So the all-important issue here is defense. Because you have new technology. Now you have iron weapons. You have iron shields, iron swords, iron axes, iron armor. All this kind of stuff. And so the all-important issue back at this time is defense. We got this new technology. We got to implement it. And we need a new government to kind of guide us with this. So in order to capitalize on this new age of change and this new technology, uh, we need a new political change. We need change so that we can be led into the future. We want a king, just like everybody else. we want a king. Now there was nothing wrong in the request itself for a king because God had already made a provision for that through Moses that it would be okay. right? I mean you can listen to the first Samuel 8 study to, to go over that. But what was wrong was in why Israel was asking for a king, not that kingship was wrong. And why? Their motive was wrong. It was their motive that was idolatrous here. See, the the Lord said in, in Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. See, their motive for a new system of doing things, that was wrong. It was founded on idolatry. That specific position with Saul was founded on idolatry. Not kingship in general, but this specific thing. But they were given that king. That king was Saul. And from then on we read how he came to ruin. Through his stubbornness. Through his disobedience. And through, through just not wanting to be with God. And not having a heart of God. And here we witness the death of this idolatry on Mount Gilboa. The death of idolatry. Because Israel's is now wiped out. It's a new beginning now. And it wasn't the office of the king that was idolatrous. Because if it was, then why is David anointed king? Because David will be king. It was how the reign of King Saul came about. It was how his kingship was birthed out of idolatry. It's helpful to point out how ineffective our idols are, isn't it? And sometimes our, our own solutions can turn out to be the worst of disasters when we intended them to be good. And the very things that we think are so brilliant and that can rescue us from our troubles, they turn out to be really, really disastrous. And when we place our ultimate hope in people to lead us out of troubles rather than God. When we idolize people rather than having God be God, we're in for disaster. And in the beginning of 1 Samuel, we have the leadership in the priests, right? In Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who led Israel astray. See, they they were immoral leaders and they they were eliminated by God. and, And so their terrible leadership was followed by the prophet Samuel. And Samuel was a good leader. Samuel was a really good leader, but he was mortal. He gets old. He needs to pass the baton, right? And so his sons have part of this responsibility of judging and of being a prophet, but but his sons are dishonest. And they're perverting justice and they're accepting bribes. And so even when there is good leadership, like in Samuel, it doesn't always get maintained, and it doesn't get maintained forever. And it doesn't guarantee that that type of good leadership is going to carry on through. And then after this, prophets came, Saul as king at the request of Israel themselves. But what happened with Saul? With Saul, we had someone who was outwardly religious, who was outwardly pious, but his heart was not submissive to God. He was disobedient to God. And we studied his degeneration Through a lot of first Samuel up until this point. Now, what's the application of this clear failure here? I think there's a couple of them. One of them is, is that God's people shouldn't put their ultimate trust in political solutions through human leadership. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't fight for good legislation, because we should. We should fight against evil. We should fight against injustice where we can. We should push public servants to fight for justice. We do what we can. And we'll get into that a little later. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't vote. We should. It it just means that the ultimate hope, the ultimate justice, isn't completely reliant on people because that's just a relative hope. That's just a relative hope justice we are to fight and do what we can against injustice against evil but let's not think that we as sinners can ever put together an ultimate solution to solve the world's evils and to solve the world's injustices only God can do that only God is holy and so we don't place our ultimate trust in human leadership. We place our relative trust, right? We, we are to be submissive to them as well. And, and so we have a relative trust that we are, we are issuing out there. But it's not an ultimate trust. Psalms chapter 146 verses 3 and 4 it says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. There's no ultimate security for us in our government or in people of leadership. So don't place your ultimate trust where it shouldn't be. That's just a relative trust. It's not ultimate trust. And second thing, sometimes through God's kindness, He shows us how inferior our idols are in which we've come to trust. Right? When, when the things we trust in, they turn out to be inferior. And sometimes it's God's kindness, it's God's grace that He shows us that. He shows us the true character of those idols that, that, that can't deliver us. And then He leads us back to Him, the ultimate hope. Now let's point out the real tragedy here in the next section. In verses 8-10. through 10. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Shan. So we read about a national tragedy in verses 4 through 7, but here in verses 8 through 10, they tell us of the real tragedy here. The real tragedy wasn't the defeat of Saul, wasn't the defeat of Jonathan, not even just the defeat of Israel. The real tragedy is the seemingly defeat of God. You see how they send their evangelists to deliver their good news in verse nine to the house of their idols and how they put Saul's armor in the temple of Ashtoreth. It's not just the defeat of a nation, but a defeat of their God, our God. And so in Philistia, they're they're praising their idols, they're worshiping and praising in their temples over the defeat of God. And if you want to get a sense of how this was, you can look at Judges chapter 16, verses 23 and 24, because it would have been pretty similar here. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. So you get a sense of kind of what their worship service was like. And so you see, the tragedy isn't that Israel was defeated or that Saul or Jonathan were defeated. The real tragedy is that God is mocked. And everyone in Philistia that received this news knew what the actions meant. That that armor going to Ashereth and and them falling and them doing what they were doing. And it wasn't just Philistia, it was all over the known world, right? Because they took over the Via Mars, word got out over there, word got out over there. Everyone is kind of getting word of this stuff. And everyone in Philistia knew that Israel was defeated, which also meant that their God was defeated. Because their God couldn't rescue them out of this thing. So in their view, our God is defeated. And they turned to worshiping and giving praise to the Philistine god Dagon. And the real tragedy is the disgrace, the dishonor of God throughout the known world. People from all over the known world hearing of the defeat of Israel and their God. And much of it stemmed from the solution the people saw in having a king as their idolatrous solution. As having Saul as king. Now let's bring this to present day and ask ourselves this question. How much does the disgrace and the dishonor of God affect us? How much does the way we live concern us because there is a reputation that we are tied to with God? And does the way that we live disgrace or dishonor God? And does that even matter to us? And in our responses... In our reactions to our terrible circumstances and our trials that are coming on in our life, are we concerned with the honor and the reputation of God or are we more concerned with our deliverance and how we come out of the thing? Is our thinking towards God or is it towards us and our culture? Our culture that is so much about having security, being self-fulfilled, fitting in, being, just having these self-absorbed thoughts and not so much about the reputation and the honor of God. Because you see, we have an excellent God. We have an excellent God. And so our concerns mostly about how our problems get solved. How much do we concern ourselves with what, what we say and what we do because it affects us personally? Or is it because we are representative and following an excellent God? that we have a reputation that we're representing here and and, and that we we have a way to damage that reputation based off of what we say and what we do. Verse 11, But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the Tamrish tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Now, why did these guys from Jabesh-Gilead do what they did? Because this is not an easy thing that they're wanting to do. right? Jabesh-Gilead is a good ten miles southeast from Bethshan, across the Jordan River, and it's just south of the Sea of Galilee. We have a map of it there. So, Jabesh-Gilead is this red dot. And if you remember where, where this battle, Mount Gilboa, took place, it's across the Jordan River that's running down there? Ten miles. Ten miles. And it's not like they have like a jeeps and things like that. These, this, They're doing it on foot. I think we have to look back to chapter 11. And this is when Saul's kind of coming into his own here. And it says, Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gebeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people? What are they weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. We read that Saul does this surprise attack. He delivers the men of Jabesh-Gilead from this mutilation, this shame, this humiliation. And so you see where these guys of Jabesh Gilead are coming from. They never forgot what Saul did for them. They remember. These guys from Jabesh Gilead remember that Saul rescued them back then from the Ammonites. That Saul rescued them from this humiliation, the shame of getting their eyes gouged out of this mutilation. And this was probably Saul's finest hour. And it was the start of his reign. And here Jabesh appears once again at the end of his reign. And so these guys travel this 10-mile trek like ninjas there, just really stealthily just go in there, travel there, take the bodies off the wall, and then carry them all the way back. And you see why they would. They, they are extremely grateful to Saul. They never forgot what Saul did for them. Yes, Saul wasn't faithful to God. Yes, Saul was disobedient to God. Yes, Saul was not submissive to God. He did some Terrible, terrible things. He killed all those priests except one. He chased David like a hunted animal. But God did use Saul to deliver Jabesh Gilead from the Ammonites, and that was good. That was something that was good. So, in the midst of all this tragedy, here's this act of heroism pulled off from these guys from Jabesh Gilead, and there's this one act of something good that there's this debt of gratitude being repaid here. And it's just a really beautiful thing, isn't it? That these guys would remember. And you notice that they can't save Saul's life, right? Saul is dead. He's been dead for a while. Because after they killed him, it took at least a day for them to go back. And it takes time for that news to travel to Jabesh Gilead until they got word of it. So so time has gone by. It doesn't say how long, but time has gone by. And so they know that he's he's been long gone, right? There's nothing that he can do. But they can show gratitude and they risked their lives they put a ton of effort here they, they travel 10 miles over there across the Jordan River and then they travel 10 miles back with these bodies in tow and verses 12 and 13 tell us they came to Jabesh and burned them there and they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted 7 days and so what these guys were probably doing is they weren't totally cremating them but they were burning them because they were decomposing there on the wall they've been there for a while these bodies were decomposed. So, so these guys are carrying these decomposing bodies back 10 miles. And they did so because they remembered. They remembered and they buried the bones. They fasted and they did this all out of act of reverence here because of what Saul did for them. They were so grateful for being rescued. And so, so what's the application for us? We're told that the spirit departed Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14. It says, Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. We're also told that the Spirit wasn't answering him anymore in chapter 28 verse 15. God has turned away from me and answers me no more either by prophets or by dreams. But back in chapter 11, Saul was Jabesh Gilead's savior and those guys did not forget that. They were so grateful that they would risk their own lives to do this last mission that really didn't mean all that much in in terms of Rescuing Israel, or rescuing Saul, or his sons, or anything—it didn't mean anything for. Them, but they needed to do that because there was this gratitude that they needed to show. And it's not like this mission was anything more than that, because what was done was already done. But it reminds me of something in the Gospels. Because you remember what Jesus said in Mark 14 when Mary of Bethany broke that alabaster flask of ointment and poured it over Jesus' head. Let's read about it. Mark chapter 14, verses three through eight. For you always have the poor with you, and whatever you want, you can do for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. I just want to extract one thing from what Jesus said in this dialogue with his disciples, and it's in verse 8 She has done what she could. She has done what she could. This wasn't a, a woman with a ton of options here or of what she could do for Jesus. She didn't have a big military following here where she could rescue Him from the Roman army or, or she couldn't rescue Him from the beating and the humiliation on the road to the cross. But given what she had and the love that she had for Jesus, she did what she could. And sometimes our call as a disciple of Jesus is simply to do what we can. And some of us have these grandiose ideas of what we want to do. But just do what you can. And you're going to make them really happy. It's going to be a really beautiful thing. You don't have to do these grandiose things. We can't necessarily fix things or reverse things. We can't beat the Philistines and save Saul from what happened on Mount Gilboa. There are these things that we can't change. But there are things that we can do. We can do what we can. So how do we practice that in our own life? Let's just throw a couple examples out there. Let's just say you have some parents who aren't Christians. And they've just not encouraged you in your relationship with Jesus. They've actually chosen to be kind of against you in that. They've chosen not to be it for themselves, but they also don't want you to be. And they have no interest in you having to be a part of Jesus or Him being a part of this family. But even if they're against you and and your relationship with Jesus, there's something you can do in response to their negativity. You can still choose to respect them. For what they have provided for you, whether that be education or shelter or food or whatever, there's a reason why you're still alive in here. They had some part to play. And they might be non-believers who discourage you in your faith. They might be people who you've often had disagreements with and fights with. They might have been people who were unloving, who were unwise, who just didn't make good decisions in how they treated you. But you can respectfully acknowledge that they did provide for you. Have you ever shared with them those things that you, you're grateful for? Even though you had a really terrible upbringing. But there were some things that they provided for. Have you ever told them how they've contributed positively to your life? And it doesn't necessarily change things. right? What happened on Gilboa still happened. But it's a response that you can do to acknowledge what they have done for you. To show a gratefulness like the guys at Jabesh Gilead. It didn't change anything but it's a show of gratitude. Or maybe it's a spouse whom you're going through a rough patch with. And for some of you, that patch is like a rough field. It's long, it's been going on for a long time. But there's something that you can be grateful for there, right? Maybe, I hope. How about sharing that with them? Like you guys had kids together maybe, and that was a cool thing, or the times that were better. And you can share and, and, and thank them for those times. And what about you guys? Um, when's the last time you guys uh, wrote a letter to your wife to show some gratitude? To thank your wives for who they are and that you're thankful for her. And are there any debts of gratitude that you need to pay? Kindnesses that need to be acknowledged. And, and the men of Jabesh Gilead, they, they cared enough for a dead guy's corpse to risk their lives, to travel 20 miles, to reverently bury his bones. And there are other examples to teach us about this as well. You look at Mark chapter 15, where there were several women standing watch over Jesus. They were present at the crucifixion. Mark chapter 15. They couldn't do anything, right? They couldn't do anything about what was happening. This is the Roman Empire we're talking about. There's nothing that they could have done, but they were there. See, there's a ministry that is called the ministry of presence. Just being there. right? Where, where there is not much you can do except be there. Like in a hospital room. Like in a funeral home. Like at the scene of an accident. Or right by a friend who just broke up with a boyfriend or a girlfriend and, and, and they're heartbroken. I mean, what can you really do? What can you really say? You can be there. That's your ministry. And in Mark chapter 15, verse 47, Mary Magdalene and the Mary, Mary the mother of Joseph were present as he was placed in the tomb. Nothing they could have done to reverse what was happening there. Jesus was dead. They were present. And in Mark chapter 16, verse 1, Mary Magdalene and the Mary, Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they, they might go and anoint him. They didn't even know how they were going to do it, really. They didn't know if it was closed already or not. They just kind of did it on faith and they were going there. But it was to be present with Jesus' body. Not much they could really do, right? They, they couldn't resurrect Jesus. They, they just wanted to show this deep gratitude within them for a king who was far greater than Saul. Our king who died for our sins. And in this final chapter of 1 Samuel, we have this sad loyalty in Jonathan and this real tragedy of dishonoring God. And we have this deep gratitude for Saul. And in this final chapter, we're taught that the fortunes of the kingdom of God can look irreversibly hopeless. And and never did things look as hopeless on that day when Jesus died, our king. But they and we, we serve a God who raises people from the dead and how that changes everything and we need to show that gratitude to God let's pray Lord Jesus we thank you for dying for us and and from rising from the dead to connect us to the Holy Father the Holy God and we ask Lord that you would give us the ability to to receive to hear to enact your word We pray that you would dwell in us and that you would grant us wisdom in how we live our life. And Father, we pray for our nation. We pray for California and Oakland. As we have elections coming up in the next several months, Lord, we we pray that uh, you would grant us mercy. We ask that you strengthen our faith in you, that we recognize and, and realize that our ultimate citizenship is with you. Lord, we, we pray for mercy. We pray for mercy for our city, for our state, for our nation. And God, keep us from confusing your kingdom with our country. And we just pray for discernment, Lord, between what is biblical and what is cultural and what what these different things that are attacking us are. We, we ask, God, that your spirit would inform us of those things. We pray that in our personal trials and in our nations, states, and cities' trials, that, that we would remember that we have an ultimate hope. In a King to whom there's there's a debt of gratitude for us to acknowledge. A King Jesus Christ who died, who rose from the dead, and who now reigns. I pray that in all of our despair, in all of our distress, and in all of our darkness over our own lives, that we are still able to rejoice because Jesus, you are the risen King. Amen.